that some of you may have checked uh, the news online within the last couple of weeks or watched the news on television in the last few weeks. I think that's probably true. And the news that you receive, whatever it is, whatever sort of news it is, impacts you. I mean, you can't receive news and stay the same. It's just a question of how it impacts you. Chances are you will act differently in some way because of the news that you receive. And it's near 100% that you will feel differently because of the news that you receive, whatever it may be. The Proverbs actually talk about this. Listen to a couple of Proverbs that discuss the reception of news and how it impacts us. Like cold water, Proverbs 25, 25, like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. When you're, when you're thirsty, when you've been out working in the afternoon in the hot sun, cold water is magnificent. It's not much better. And he's saying that's like good news that you receive, that this may be unexpected from a far country. Listen to this one, Proverbs 15, 30. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and good news refreshes the bones. There actually are physical benefits to receiving good news. There's a physical response that you and I have to news. So both of these Proverbs talk about the refreshing and the positive impact of good news to the soul. And yet, so many Christians use up their God-given hours, the very limited hours that we receive on this earth, filling our minds and our hearts with contentious, angry, and manipulated sources of news. It's no wonder that we can be grumpy people. It's no wonder that we don't respond with refreshing refreshment in our bones, but instead we respond with grouchiness to the news that we receive. So let me encourage you this week, let me challenge you and exhort you to take some time, plan ahead this coming week, right? Plan ahead, look at your schedule and say, here are the times when I typically indulge myself in some sort of news from outside that isn't good news. I'm not saying ignore everything that's happening in the world, but look at your schedule. And if this is something that you're given to, intentionally set aside time to think about the good news of the gospel and immerse yourself in the good news that comes from the scriptures to us. Give yourself to that so that you can be refreshed and so that you can be edified in your heart. And I want to help you with that. I want to give you some good news to think about this morning, to prep you so that you can do that this coming week. I told you I was going to do this last week, but I want to explain the greatest news of all to you this morning from a very high perspective, the gospel in the air. This is going to be the 30,000, maybe even the 90,000 foot view of the gospel, right? But that's what we're going to do this morning. This comes in four parts to us, the gospel in the air, and we're going to begin at the very beginning with creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1, the very first verse in the Bible. God 
the eternally existing triune God who is absolutely sovereign over all speaks and creates everything. Nothing existed except God before he opened his mouth and spoke and began to create all things that now exist. And since he is the creator of everything, he is the king and the sovereign ruler over everything. And as you open your Bible and begin to read in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis 2, this becomes abundantly clear. He speaks and creation comes into existence. And he speaks and everything instantly and absolutely obeys his authoritative command. He's the king. And his creation is structured and ordered and it is good. It is delightful. It is wonderful. In fact, he wraps up his creation account, the first six days of creation, with this assessment in Genesis 1.31. And God saw everything that he had made. He sort of stepped back and looked at it. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And these words at the very end of Genesis chapter 1 come right after the pinnacle of his creation. Everything in creation had led to a certain point, to a certain being that was created on day six. Everything in creation builds towards God's special project, his unique and his beloved special creation, human beings. The whole rhythm of the creation week, there is a rhythm to it as you read it in Genesis 1, but the whole rhythm of the account actually slows down when you get to the creation of human beings. And that's to set apart humans and what God is doing in them and through them. And when you get to the creation of human beings, God actually converses with himself. There's like an intra-Trinitarian discussion about the creation of this, this special being. And he discusses creating them and the purpose for why he's going to create human beings. And this is in Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. That's really small on the screen, but I will read it to you. I have good eyes, so I can see it on the back there. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. You can see this purpose that God is giving to humans and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now with these words, God defines you and me, human beings, as made in his image. In other words, human beings are made to reflect God and to represent him on the earth. It's interesting because we're similar enough to God to represent him for there to be a connection to him with us. And we're designed, because of that similarity, to be in close fellowship with him. We're actually made to have communion with the triune God. 
And yet, even though we're close to him and we have fellowship with him and he delights in us as his creation, we're accountable to him. And we have a task that we have been given by God. And we're accountable to him because he is the sovereign king. And so as human beings in this creation live in God's presence and as they enjoy fellowship and communion with him and with one another, God gives them a task to accomplish. What is that task? They are to rule and they are to reign over creation as God's representatives. They're to represent him. They're to be his vice regents, literally kings and queens, ruling on his behalf over the world. And as they rule, they are to cultivate the world, the elements of creation. They are to work hard, and they are to cultivate the world for their good, for human flourishing, and for the glory of God as they represent him. And this is a glorious life that humans have been given in Genesis 1. And it's a worthy task that they are to to undertake. One set of authors described it like this, and I thought this was really helpful. At its beginning, the creation, creation is redolent with shalom. The Old Testament word for peace, meaning the rich, integrated, relational wholeness God intends for his creation. The life of Adam and Eve is the life of shalom. They walk with God, they have each other, The garden provides all they need as they fill, as they till its fertile soil and prune its burgeoning plants. There is no storm cloud on this horizon, no hint of trouble to come. What could possibly go wrong? Yes. Yes, what could go wrong? And that leads us to the second part of the story. But you have to understand this initial purpose for human beings and why God has created them and what they're supposed to do before you can really understand The fall, which is our next part, and ultimately you can understand the redemption in Christ Jesus. And so as you turn from this beautiful picture in Genesis 1 and 2, you turn the page to the third chapter of Genesis, we find right at the beginning an intruder in God's good world. The serpent comes to Adam and Eve, and the first thing he does is he challenges the authority of the sovereign king. And he challenges the authority of the creator of the world by challenging the truthfulness of his words. God creates by his word, and Satan challenges his authority by denying the truthfulness of his word. Everything in the creation account has pointed to God's authority through his words and his goodness toward his creation. There's been no hint that God is anything less than good and gracious up to this point. And yet, in Genesis 3, we find a created being, someone who God has made, attacking their creator, attacking the God who made them, and trying to undo his rule and reign over his image bearers. And tragically, in Genesis 3, right away, Adam and Eve listen to the lies, the words of the serpent. And they doubt God's goodness, and they doubt his authority, to the point where they willfully disobey his commands. And so they take the tree, and they eat. 
And when they eat, they are defying God's rule and reign. They are are not wanting him to be sovereign and him to be the king. They want to put themselves on the throne and they want to be the king and the queen of everything. And when they disobey and reject his authority and try to create their own authority, they plunge the entire creation into division, into disarray, and into death. It's a tragic turn in the story. And the immediate aftermath is heartbreaking. We get so used to reading it that we don't often feel the weight of what has happened in Genesis 3. Immediately, Adam and Eve feel guilt, and they're stricken with it. They feel shame. They try to hide from one another, and they try to hide from their good creator who loves them and wants to be with them. They begin to attack one another. They shift blame, try to get out from under the consequences of their wrongdoing. You can summarize the, the results of their sin, of their rebellion, by pointing to three areas. They now have a broken relationship with God. They have broken relationships with one another. Horizontal and vertical relationships are broken. And they have a broken relationship with the created world. Things aren't like they were in Genesis 1 and 2. All is not as it should be. And you can summarize all of those consequences, all of that brokenness with the word death. Death came into the world through their rebellion against God. Another set of authors put it like this. Yet, now, in light of human rebellion... God's rightful rule over the entire creation is foolishly rejected by the human race. Sin is essentially rebellion against the claims of the king, moral autonomy. And so, as a result of our sin, we now stand under God's judicial sentence of condemnation, guilt, and death. And there are texts that spell that out there. The human couple are cast out of the garden, away from God's presence, and they're given a whole litany of specific judgments that will come to them, of consequences that will come to them because of their sin. And these judgments are found in Genesis 3, verses 14 through 19. But keep in mind, this is why the beginning of this this story is so important. Keep in mind that the God who created them, who made all that exists, still loves his creation, even though his creation has rebelled against him. He is a God of pure goodness and of grace, and he will not allow his creation to descend into disarray and division and death for all of eternity. So, in the very middle of these judgments and of the consequences that come to the human couple and the rest of their descendants and all of creation in Genesis 3, right in the middle of that, he makes sure that death and division will not have the last word. There is a promise of hope right away in the middle of that account. And this is where the gospel, the good news, really gets going. This is where we'll spend the bulk of our time this morning, redemption. Creation, fall, necessary backdrops to the story of redemption. Now, this is the point for you and I, I think, where our understanding of the gospel takes a serious hit. This is where we sort of cheapen the gospel by skipping over 
a whole lot of the scriptures that, that lay this out for us. And so what we do is we understand the sin of Adam and Eve, the sin of human beings, and then we jump all the way ahead to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we skip everything in between that really helps us to understand redemption. And when we do this, we miss the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. And that's important language that I'm using, the unfolding of his plan of redemption. And when we do that, we don't really understand the good news. So listen to this promise that comes right away in Genesis 3, in the midst of consequences and judgment. Speaking to the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a promise, and Adam and Eve would have heard this as a promise that the work of the serpent, the lies of the serpent, the death that had come through his work and their decision would be undone, that it would be corrected, that it would be made right. And it would be made right through someone, a deliverer, who would come through the line of Eve, her descendant, her seed would come. This deliverer will set things right by restoring God's rule and reign through human beings. And that's why it's so important to understand creation and the purpose of human beings, because you don't really understand what the purpose of Christ's work is going to accomplish. To restore, this seed will restore God's rule and reign through human beings. So this is the overture at the beginning of the story, and it points and gives us direction for understanding the unfolding of the rest of the story. And last week I told you that I think one of the problems we have in understanding the gospel is we miss seeing the work of Christ as the climax of the story, right? We sort of go there and skip over the beginning of the story, all of the chapters that lead up to the climax. And so This is the point in Genesis 3, right at the beginning, where we have to press into the story and we have to begin to understand how this story unfolds and lays itself out. And here's the key thing that you need to understand to begin grasping this story. It is a slowly unfolding plan that comes in pieces. It is progressively coming to us. We don't get the whole thing at once. We don't understand the whole thing at once. It comes progressively to us. So if you read this promise here without any other knowledge, this is a somewhat vague promise. I mean, we can look back and say, well, yeah, we know what's going to happen, but this is a somewhat vague promise to Adam and Eve. But this promise starts, and as God's plan unfolds, it becomes more specific. It becomes more narrow. We get more details. It's like the tension is building and the expectation is building throughout the Old Testament. And it's building toward the climax that we have in the New Testament. Now, I'm going I'm to try here to give you a basic introduction in how to read your Old Testament as a gospel book. And this is really high like level, um, not detailed at all, but this will begin to, to set you in the right direction in how to read your Old Testament, I think. There's lots more we could say here. But this is how to read your Old Testament 
as a book that climaxes in the life and the work of Jesus Christ. And there are three major ways that the Old Testament unfolds God's redemptive plan. And as you're reading your Old Testament, you want to look for all three of these major ways, all right? The first one of these is the most significant, and we'll spend almost all of our time here. Promises. You can see this at the very beginning, Genesis 3.15. God's plan of redemption begins with a promise. Here is a promise. So you read the rest of the story in light of that promise. But then, as you continue reading in the Old Testament, you find several other big promises. And these are called covenants. And you cannot understand the work of Christ as the climax of the story, and you really can't understand your Old Testament unless you understand these covenants, unless you're familiar with these covenants. Think of these covenants as the backbone of the story, okay? Kind of a crude illustration, but everything hangs off of the backbone, right? All the nerves and the muscles, everything functions because of the backbone. It ties everything together. That's what these covenant promises do in the Old Testament. Everything hangs off of these promises. And so when you're reading your Old Testament, you want to know what covenant has been given and where you are in the covenantal unfolding of God's plan of redemption. All right? As these covenants come to us, they get more specific. They get more detailed. And they further work out God's plan of redemption. So what are these covenants? Again, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail here. There have been volumes written on probably each one of these. But I'm going to give you the list, and then you can explore these further, all right? The first one of these is the Noahic covenant. Now, why is this covenant significant and important found in Genesis 9? This covenant is what we call the common grace covenant. This doesn't necessarily specifically deal with God's plan of redemption per se, but what this does is it's God's promise that the world will not be destroyed by the flood, that the seasons will come and go. And so this provides the common grace background for the world and for God's plan of redemption, right? So this gives us the structure and the orderliness of creation so that God's plan of redemption can move forward, all right? This this sets the background so so that God's work of redemption is possible, Genesis 9. The second one of these covenants, and this is where the the redemptive aspect of God's covenants really begins to start unfolding. And this is maybe the most important one, the Abrahamic covenant. So God made this kind of vague promise in Genesis chapter 3 of a seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. Now he comes to this man, Abraham, and calls him out of his homeland, and he gives him three specific promises, makes a covenant with him. He says that I'm going to grow your family to a great nation. I'm going to plant this nation in a promised land that I'm going to give to you. And through this nation in this land, I'm going to bless the entire world. And so what God is saying to Abraham is the seed of the woman is going to come through your line 
And it's through your line, these people planted in this land, that I'm going to bless the world and I'm going to restore human rule and reign over creation through you and through your line. That's going to be the blessing that comes to the rest of the world. And so then, as you're reading the book of Genesis, everything in the book of Genesis unfolds the covenant to Abraham. I mean, the whole, read the rest of the book of Genesis, and the whole rest of the book is about Abraham's seed, his family, and about the land that they're, they're promised, and about them being a blessing to other nations, right? The whole rest of the book unfolds those promises to Abraham, that covenant. Well, that covenant gets more specific as Abraham's descendants go into the nation of Egypt and then God rescues them from Egypt and brings them out of Egypt and is going to bring them into the promised land. And as he brings them out of Egypt and redeems them and points them toward the promised land, he gives them another covenant. And this is called the Sinai Covenant. I'm sure there are several names for this, but you can read about this covenant in Exodus 19 through 24. And further, really. But listen to this sort of constitutional uh, description of what they're going to be, the nation of Israel. It's in Exodus 19, verses 4 to 6. I'll read this to you. It won't be on the screen. God says this to, to Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what God's telling them is that they are to model for the world what living under God's rule and reign looks like. They're to do this the right way. They're to obey his word. In in some ways, God's saying, I want you to correct what was wrong in Genesis 3. And so God gives them laws to obey. And he dwells with them and empowers them through his presence in the tabernacle, in the temple. And he's going to bless them with his presence so that they can be a blessing to the entire world. Next covenant. Further specificity here. The nation of Israel gets into the land. And they struggle, right? A lot. And so God makes a further promise because things aren't getting fixed. Humans aren't living in the right way. They're not ruling and reigning under God's authority by obeying his commands. So God gives another covenant to David and to his descendants. Now the focus narrows from Abraham and his family line in the promised land to an individual who will come through the line of David, a a king specifically. He will bless the world by ruling as a human being over God's world. That's the Davidic covenant. Now, the last covenant sort of helps us to understand all of these other ones, and this is the new covenant. What's interesting as you read the Old Testament, and I've already hinted at this, is as God makes each of these promises, these covenants, there's been an obvious problem, hasn't there? Things are not getting put right, are they? In fact, as God makes these promises, human beings never follow through on their end of the bargain. 
They never obey. They have responsibilities and they don't keep up with them. In fact, they continue to rebel. They continue to break his law. Their task was to submit to God's rule and reign through his words and obey him. But they don't, do they? Over and over again, they pursue other gods. They rebel against his authority. Things are not as they should be. Even the Davidic kings rebel against God and don't rightly represent him. And so God here promises a new covenant that builds on the other covenants, but is distinct and different. And this covenant is going to fully and finally solve the problem with human beings. This is the covenant where their sins, their hearts, their sins will be forgiven and fully dealt with, and their hearts will be made new. They will receive a new heart where now their desire will be to obey God and to rightfully submit to his rule and reign. This is a covenant predicted in the prophets. As things are going absolutely haywire with the nation of Israel, God promises this covenant and says, I'm going to finally make things right. I'm going to fix the human problem of rebellion through forgiveness of sins. And this new covenant will come through a future Davidic king who is in the line of Abraham, who is the seed of the woman. And so, as you're reading your Old Testament, these promises, these covenants are the backbone. They move God's plan of redemption forward. They progressively unfold this story and they build toward a climax. And so when you're reading your Old Testament, you have to always be aware of how these covenants are influencing the stories and the people that you're reading about in the Old Testament. Because the whole structure of the Old Testament is about basically these covenants. And each of these promises anticipate the completion and the climax of the story. They're like earlier chapters that build toward toward the culmination. So the promises are significant in unfolding redemption in the Old Testament. Let me give you two other ways that you're, you're looking for God's plan to work itself out in the Old Testament. Pictures. So you've got promises and you've got pictures. The Old Testament is filled with pictures of God's redemption. Partial pictures but pictures nonetheless, types that anticipate what God's full and final redemption will look like. So what would be some examples of these? When God rescues the nation of Israel from Egypt, the Exodus, Mark presents the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work as a new Exodus. It's like the old one, but it's new and distinct in in different ways. The Passover lamb is a picture of God's full and final redemption. It doesn't completely make things right, does it? It doesn't solve the human problem of needing forgiveness of sin and of rebellion against God. It doesn't restore human authority over creation, but the Passover lamb anticipates what God's final redemption will look like. The tabernacle and the temple, God dwelling with his people. And yet in both the tabernacle and the temple, People have to come to him through a barrier because there's sin. There's human sin there that has to be dealt with. And so they can only approach him and get so close to him. 
But the tabernacle and the temple anticipate what God's final redemption will look like, where God will come and dwell with his people for all of eternity. And so the Old Testament is filled with these sort of pictures of redemption, partial pictures, but pictures that point forward and anticipate what the work of Christ will be like. And so as you're reading through the Old Testament, you look for these pictures too. And last thing I would say is look at the people of the Old Testament. So you can, you can think of the Old Testament as God giving this initial task to Adam and Eve, and then all of these other human beings taking up that task and failing over and over again. And there's a reason that Jesus is called the last Adam, because the first Adam failed, and then so did everyone else in between. They're given this task, Abraham, Moses, the Old Testament priests, Joshua, David, the prophets, all of them are given this task to rightly obey God's command and to rule and reign under his authority, and they all fail. The nation of Israel fails. But what these people do in the Old Testament is they imperfectly foreshadow the work of the Redeemer. They point forward to him. They, they're types of him. They represent him. And they do this through their actions. But they also anticipate the need for a redeemer because throughout the Old Testament, you see sinful people who can't obey and who can't get it right and don't submit to God's authority and obey him as they ought to. And so they point to the need for a redeemer through their failures. Now, without these three areas, and you could build on these, there probably are more um, that you could get to, but... Without at least these three areas, I don't think you can really grasp the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you skip from Genesis 3 to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, you have missed all of this. And so you can't really grasp Christ. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Well, we don't know that unless we know our Old Testaments. What does it mean that he is According to John 1, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What does that mean? Well, you only know that if you know the background story. What does it mean that he is our great high priest? What does it mean that he represents the nation of Israel? In Matthew 1 through 4, Jesus does the very same things that Israel does He's tempted in the wilderness. He comes out of Egypt. There's all these stories that go back to the Old Testament where Jesus does the same things that Israel does, but he obeys where they failed. And you have to know that to be able to understand his work. Why does Jesus come preaching the kingdom? Why is he so focused on God's rule and reign coming through his person and work? Well, you can't understand that unless you know the creation account, the rebellion against God's authority, and then the unfolding of God's plan in the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament gives us the unfolding plan of God's redemption with the purpose of setting things right. And then the Gospels show us the climax of that plan of redemption. Everything leads to the Gospels. Jesus is the one promised in the covenants. All of those covenants look forward to him and to his work. He is the one represented in the pictures. 
And he is the one needed by the people of the Old Testament. So he comes onto the scene and he's preaching the kingdom, God's rule and reign. And he's saying God's rule and reign is coming. And then he's showing what that rule and reign looks like through his miracles. Things will be set right. But as you're reading the Gospels, in an incredible twist in the story, he actually brings God's rule and reign not through ascending to the throne over Israel, but he actually brings God's rule and reign through his own sacrificial death for his people. He initiates this new covenant that was promised in the Old Testament and brings forgiveness of sins by dying as a substitute for our sins, as 1 Corinthians 15 says. A couple of authors put it like this. The cross represents the climactic victory of the kingdom of God. God's rule was disrupted by human rebellion and all that came with it. Demonic power, sickness, suffering, pain, and death. Every kind of evil. The root of all opposition to God's rule was human rebellion, and that could be destroyed only at the cross as Jesus bore the guilt and sin of the world. And when he dies for his people and rises from the dead, he shows that the the victory, the authority of God has been established over Satan and over death. And Satan and death are the enemies that we find in Genesis chapter 3. The head of the serpent has been crushed through the death and the resurrection of the seed of the woman. And this is not where the good news ends. This is good news, but the good news leads us to something which is the final part of the gospel in the air, which is consummation. His resurrection anticipates this final part consummation. So right now, we are in a funny time as his people. We live in between, right? Because he inaugurates his kingdom through his death and through his ascension to sit at the right hand of the Father to reign as king. And so we're a part of the kingdom now, but the kingdom has not fully come. It hasn't finally arrived. Things haven't been set right completely. And so we, you and I, live in between. We're partakers of the new covenant. Our sins have been forgiven and we experience that now and live in light of that. And yet we're here awaiting the final arrival of God's kingdom. And we have a task to undertake in the meantime. And in the meantime, we anticipate and look forward to this final consummation. So what does this final consummation mean? Why is this good news? Now, this is eschatology, right? This is the end of all things. But let me just kind of like try to adjust how you think about eschatology a little bit. We get so wrapped up in the the details of who's the Antichrist, Gog and Magog, is that Russia, right? Is the, you know, the image in Revelation of helicopter flying it, right? Where, how does America fit into the end times? We get so wrapped up in those details that we ignore and miss out on these big picture realities that are coming to us as part of this gospel story. 
It's like we get so focused on the details of the bark on a single tree that we fail to see the beauty of the whole forest. And so I want to draw your attention back out and say, let's look at the big picture. What is coming? What is eschatology really all about? It's about a new creation, a renewed creation, the creation that God loves and made and was good and was fallen and cursed is going to be set right and made new. We read about that this morning in Romans chapter 8. The creation itself will be set free from bondage. And when that happens, God will rule and reign on earth, dwelling with us at, through human beings as his vice regents. So a new creation is part of the consummation that we look forward to. Resurrected bodies are something that we can hope in and anticipate. 1 Corinthians 15 goes into great detail on this. We will receive bodies that are made right, that are free from sin and capable of enjoying God's creation as he intended and capable of dwelling in his presence for all eternity. And then lastly, we will receive eternal life with God on the new earth. Not in heaven, but on the new earth. Let me read you a couple of passages from Revelation. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so those are the big pieces of eschatology that we have to hope in and to look forward to in the consummation. So this is a very, very broad and big picture presentation of the good news of the gospel. But I hope you can see how we have to understand God's original purposes in creation and then how his plan has unfolded in the Old Testament. And we have to understand both of those things so that we can truly appreciate the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the good news. So on the, on the sermon reflection questions, which are in the back there, I've listed, it must be eight to 10 books on the back of that that will help you with this big picture of the gospel. Those books will explain some of these details uh, and, and help you to get a better grasp on this. 
and, and how this really is good news. So let me encourage you to, over the next few weeks, get one of those books, maybe order it from Amazon. We'll try to have some of them in the back there. But go introduce yourself to some aspect of this, this gospel in the air that you've not interacted with much before. I mean, think about Christ in the Old Testament. Think about creation. Think about eschatology, the consummation that is to come. Think about some aspect of this good news. And think about some aspect that you don't know very well because of of what I said when we started. Because this will serve you well in these crazy days when we have so much news coming at us. And it will be like cold water to a thirsty soul or like good news from a far country. It will benefit you and refresh your bones, which I think we all need during these crazy days. So let me pray. We'll continue sing one more song to the Lord before we go, all right? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story. I've hardly done it justice this morning. There's so much more to explore in this good news, but we thank you for these big pieces. I pray that you would encourage us, help us to see how we fit within this this broad plan of redemption. And we thank you for the climax of this story, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you for your coming, your incarnation, your perfect life, your death, your resurrection and ascension, and the fact that you're coming back again. You're coming back to finally rule and reign and set things right. I pray that you would encourage us with this reality even this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth. It's in Christ's name we pray.